the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Online at Lone Star Chant. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. When Jesus heard about Lazarus, he came to Bethany. Found Lazarus four days in the grave. He told Mary and Martha he's only asleep. Then Lazarus heard him say, about Calvary, how Jesus can wash your sins away. Satan tries to hold on and rock him back to sleep, but he hears the Holy Spirit softly say, Oh, sinner, oh, sinner, oh, sinner, it's time to wake up. Oh, sinner, Saints will hear him say, Oh, sing, oh, sing, oh, sing, it's time to wake up. Oh, sing, it's time to wake up. Today's sermon is pre recorded. Let's pray. Mighty God of heaven, you are the King, the Lord, the Almighty. I ask for revival. And I thank you in advance, for I know you have promised revival. That I would see it in the land of the living. I thank you, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen. The place of crushing. The place of crushing. 
I want you to look around. Wonderful music this evening. Music more beautiful than I think I've heard in a long time. A few friends. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. This is what it looks like when there's no revival. Many were invited. Many said they'd be here. But there's no revival. There's still death in the church. Now, we could have done a great deal of marketing in the city, spent ten dollars or $20,000 on radio ads, and we could have gotten a crowd here, especially if we'd advertised a popular music group. They would not have been any better than Pastor Dan, but they have a reputation and a name. And people would have come to listen to the band And then I could have preached a revival sermon to him. And we could have said, look, it's revival. No. It's not revival. Now, I'm going to be very upfront with you. I have one agenda in my life. His name is Jesus. He's my agenda. He has my full attention. Jesus, Jesus alone. And Jesus' agenda is revival. To capture the hearts of his people and restore them and bring them into his service as soldiers of the cross. So I have one agenda with Jesus, revival. I'm not going to play church anymore. Now, I've pastored large, very large churches, mega church, down to little household companies. And it's expected that you go through all of these different things so that everyone is happy and it looks like everybody's loved and everybody's included and and you know you have to get everybody involved and give them a job and you've got to... No revival. I finally come to a place in my life where I'm at the dead end. For me, it's over. I'm not going to play church anymore. I want revival. If revival were here tonight, I'm going to tell you what it would look like because I've been in revival one time in my life. There would be jamming with people. There would be sick people being healed. There would be weeping and confession of sin. And there would be, on the other hand, shouts of victory and glory. And revival is messy. And exhausting. Because it is non-stop. How do you shut off the valve of God's presence? He's in charge. He'll go where he wants to go. And he'll say what he wants to say. And he'll do what he wants to do. It's his church. 
It's not my church. It's not Brother Dan's church. The church belongs to Jesus. I'll tell you briefly what happened. I was sitting in a a week of services of prayer, one hour a day, in a chapel setting in high school. And suddenly, unexpectedly, the Holy Spirit came. And when the Holy Spirit came, the whole atmosphere of the place changed. It was transformed. The preacher is preaching his normal sermon. I know this man. I spoke with him as a pastor many years later. And I said, did that take you by surprise? He said, I've never experienced anything like it before or since. Sovereignly, the Holy Spirit came down into that student body of about 300. He's standing there preaching. And young people in high school were sitting there with tears flowing down their faces. Men and women, boys and girls. The girls were on this side, the guys were on this side. They didn't let us sit together. People are just weeping, sitting there crying. He stops his preaching and he says, what's going on? Why are you crying? I'm a sinner. I've done. And they began to just blurt out what they'd done. He said, do you want to get right with Jesus? Yes. Well, come on up here and take the mic. Tell us what you've done. That started several days nonstop. Of confession, of repentance, of praise and glory. And I'll tell you the most exciting part. When one student got through, he began to zero in on other students that he knew had joined him in that sin. And I'm talking real sin. I'm talking sexual uncleanness. I'm talking homosexuality. I'm talking getting drunk, smuggling uh, alcohol into the dorm rooms, uh, bringing cigarettes into the dorm rooms. You name it, they did it. And they began going to their partners in crime and saying, look, you've got to get right with Jesus. This is your only chance. The whole place was transformed. And then the presence of God withdrew. And things became normal again. Except those kids were changed. I was one of the kids that was changed. I was filled with rage and anger as a young high school kid. I would fight at the drop of a hat. You say something wrong to me and my fist began to fly. You didn't mess with me. I was a farm boy. And I had farm fists, hard work in the field. I was sitting there and the Lord confronted me with my anger. And I said, Lord, take it. Like that, my anger was gone and I have never been in another fight. I have never cursed a man. The white rage, I don't mean red anger, I mean white Anger that'll kill. It was gone, total, complete. 
It's never come back. But my heart has longed. And I have prayed. Over 40 years. For revival in Washington, D.C. The Lord sent me to Washington, D.C. when I was in high school and said, this is your place of ministry. I watched as he brought me here. I've watched as he's held me here. And now I've come to a total end. I'm not willing to do anything anymore without revival. It's revival or bust. I can't live without it. We have to have the Holy Spirit. Do you all realize 4,000 babies a day are being murdered in their mama's wombs in America? Genocide against the black race. That's what's going on. And it's going on even in Christian hospitals. I won't give you the gruesome details, but nurses have told me of the buckets of body parts. Now, please, corruption on every side, violence on every side, the ascendancy of homosexuality and every other kind of unclean thing is championed in this nation. The swamp overflows. Every kind of wickedness is flowing. Alcoholism is rampant. D.C. is marked as one of the greatest consumers of alcohol of any city per capita in the nation. This is the nation that runs with drunkenness. Okay. Let me give you the framework of revival. This is intellectual stuff, but I need to at least set the framework so that when I speak about revival, you have some understanding of of the full scope of what I mean by revival. First of all, revival presupposes that a church is backslidden. I could spend the rest of the time describing all of the signs of backsliddenness, but the empty sanctuary speaks for itself. Pride, offense at being confronted with sin, a sense of self-importance, a lack of concern for the dying and the sinner, a lack of concern. I don't know how to even talk about it. I'll wait and talk about it in the message. I come, though, with a very, very heavy heart because of the people that I'm crying out to God to save. And I see them on their way to hell. And I want that reversed. Phase two, after men and women begin to humble their heart and begin to repent of their sin, whether it be alcoholism, homosexuality, pride, malice, arrogance, whatever the sin is that binds the heart. Satan doesn't care as long as he binds the heart. 
When repentance begins to happen, the breakthroughs begin to happen. What I talked about at the high school begins to happen. People begin to say, how can I reach out to my family? How can I reach my friends? And instruction then needs to begin to be given for how you save the lost. I was sitting with a group of about 15 men. I began to raise the issue that if you have not won anyone to Jesus... You're in trouble. And the immediate defense was from these so-called Christian men. That's not my skill. I don't have that ability. Well, Jesus has only one commission. A fisher of men. If you're not a fisher of men, you're not fulfilling the gospel commission. And if you're not fulfilling the gospel commission, you're in need of revival. So phase two of a revival is where you begin to transition in a church because revival usually happens in the church. I'll say just one thing. Generally, when churches are sprung upon with revival, people get their hair up and they get angry because they feel insulted because suddenly they're confronted with the fact that their church is not perfect and they begin to see that they're not very comfortable and so defenses begin to arise. I understand that. Phase two is when you begin to get through that and you begin to reach out to others, you can then begin to enter into phase three of revival. And phase three is what continues constantly from that point forward. It becomes an evangelistic outreach and the whole church becomes a life-saving machine to go gather in the harvest. The Lord said... Pray for the harvesters to be sent. Well, the harvesters are not being sent. The church is like a big grocery store, and the church consumes most of what is in the grocery store instead of taking it out to the hungry and the dying. So most Christians today in America are fat and happy and need revival. We have listened to far too many sermons and are far too educated. And by the way, we preachers are better educated, have more higher degrees than any time in the history of the Christian church. You have an educated clergy in America. Most of us have masters of divinity as a minimum. And many have that wonderful title, doctor. And yet the lost are dying at an unprecedented rate. So phase three is where the whole church begins to pull together in one great spasm of outreach with food, with homeless shelter, with every kind of imaginable outreach to the community 
so that the church is a gathering place where we strategize and talk and pray and struggle together for how we're going to get the resources to get out there and win those precious people to Jesus before they're cast into hell. But repentance is where it all starts. And the hardest task, now can I be real, real honest? The hardest task a preacher has to do is be honest with his congregation and stop trying to please them and pat them on the head. Because if he doesn't please them, they'll leave and take their tithe with them or they'll fire him. And no preacher wants to be fired and no preacher wants to have people angry at him. And I include myself in that. And I have finally been utterly broken of that. And when I stopped pleasing everybody in my church, most of them got mad and left. And so on Friday, or on this weekend, on this past Sunday, we had a funeral for the National Prayer Chapel. And we said, okay, this ends this phase of the National Prayer Chapel life. And now with a small core of people who truly want revival, we're going to start again. And we're not going to play church this time. We're going to go after the lost and the dying. But we're going to do it under the name of Jesus. And we're going to deal with the revival issue until the power of God is poured out from heaven. And we're not going to back away from it. No matter what, we're not going to back away from it. All right, now let me share the message I have for you. That was the intro. When we begin to talk about theology, we have a problem. Theology is defined, at least in seminary, as the study of God. I disagree wholeheartedly with that definition. I've never been able to get God in a test tube. You can't study God. I want to give you a working definition of theology tonight... And then I want to take you into the story. Theology, I believe, is first the revelation of God comes and there's a confession that that revelation is truth. Jesus is the truth. Secondly, theology requires a reflection, a meditation on our part regarding these issues. It's hard to do theology when your attention is totally given over to football. I'll bet most of you could tell me who's playing in the Super Bowl. Does it really matter? Will it affect your salvation? Yeah, I think it will. It may mean that your attention is not on Jesus and that your attention is on the world, the flesh, and the devil, and you miss that time of meditation, and that may be the time the Holy Spirit comes and tries to speak to you, but you're not listening. You're absorbed in the world. Isn't it time for we who call ourselves Christians to stand up and say, let's cut the world out of our lives? 
Let's stop playing the devil's game. And you can't tell me tonight that football is Jesus' game. I don't think there's going to be a football league in heaven. I don't think Gabriel's going to organize it. If our attention is focused on the world, the flesh, and the devil, we can't reflect very well on the truth of Jesus, and then it becomes trite, shallow, casual. So everywhere we go, we just laugh and chit-chat and go along, and we're friends with everybody, and everybody loves us, and we love everybody as hell's door is approaching. And many of those most precious to us will slide through that door. Is that all right with you? That's not all right with me. I want salvation in the name of Jesus. The third part of this theology, first is confession of truth based on the revelation of Jesus. Second is reflection on that revelation. And third the obedience and practicing of the truth that has been revealed to us. Righteousness is something we have to practice. It doesn't just come. Now, righteousness is a free gift given to us. It's all by faith. It's not by works. But it's something we have to practice. We have to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Now, let me tell you the story. A few months ago, I was privileged to travel to Israel. And I stood in a place called Gethsemane. It's at the base or the foot of the Mount of Olives. Many of the trees that I saw, that I touched, that I felt, were trees that were there when Jesus was there. The garden was really a place of commerce. It was the place where the olives were brought from these trees, and they were crushed, and the olive oil was then sold. There is, in the garden, a large stone that is lifted by a timber to get leverage. That stone is lowered down on burlap bags that are stacked high, full of olives ready to be pressed. And as that stone is lowered down onto those olive bags and the olives are crushed, the oil begins to flow out and is caught in a basin. You do not get the oil from the olive without crushing it. The stone that is lowered onto those olives is called the Gethsemane stone. Jesus goes to this garden. We're told that he would often go to this garden. We find the story in Mark, the 14th chapter. 
I'll begin reading in verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Now, he had been going to this garden all that week, every night, and they were sleeping in the outdoors, just wrapping their outer garments around them to stay warm. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Literally, in the Greek, he began to be astonished. Astonished. Because suddenly, in the garden, as he's praying... He becomes deeply distressed, astonished at what's coming upon him, and troubled. He's not troubled by the cross that's coming. He'd already said, I came for this very purpose. But instead, he's being troubled by the piercings of God as God began to lay on him the iniquity of man. As he lays that iniquity on him and the utter Brokenness, wickedness, pain, anguish, as that begins to be lowered from the world upon his back, he is going to be crushed to death by that Gethsemane stone. Verse 34, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said, stay here and keep watch. We're told in Luke 22, I won't go there, Luke twenty two thirty nine. we're told he was so anguished, he began to sweat blood. What level of anguish do you have in your heart tonight for your own sin, if there be such? Or what level of anguish do you have in your heart for the sin of those you love, if there be such? What's the level of anguish in your heart? What's the level of pain in your heart? If you want to have the heart of Jesus, you're going to have to have a heart of anguish for the lost. It's not going to be casual. It's not going to be informational. It's going to be emotional. I have people, if I began to speak about them, I would begin to weep. Because the tears are right there at the surface when I just begin to think about them. Because they're dying and they're going to go to hell if God does not intercede in their life. I've tried to speak to them and they reject me. They push me away. They don't want to talk. One precious person says, Pastor, don't talk to me about that. I'm a pagan. I don't believe in your Jesus. Heart's broken. She's denying my Jesus. How do I deal with that? I have not sweat blood. I'm saying, oh Lord, increase my anguish for the lost. Most of us are quite casual about the lost. We don't see them as lost. We've shut out the door of hell. 
But as a pastor, I keep having to do funerals for people who are on the way to hell. And I've had to stand in front of the congregation and say to the people in the family, you know, your loved one rejected Jesus Christ. And they deliberately did so. And Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father. One man right over here at the local hospital. I was called by the family. I went to the room. This man, probably in his 60s, he said, I've decided not to take any more treatment. I'm not going to have my blood cleaned again. They've told me I have about two hours to live. I said, are you ready to talk about Jesus? I'd asked him this before. I'd visit him in the hospital a number of times and tried to speak to him. I said, are you ready now to talk about Jesus? He said, Pastor, I don't want to hear anything about Jesus. I said, do you know where you're going when you die? I said it that way. He said to me, When I die, I become unconscious, and I will never know another thing. And I've had a good life. I said, my brother, you're not going to have a good life. There's a hell you have to face. And it's eternal. And the smoke of your torment will ascend forever. You really want that? Well, I don't want your Jesus I said, okay, now let's be clear. I'm going to preach your funeral service. It's already been arranged. And I'm going to tell those gathered family members that you made a conscious decision to go to hell. May I have permission to say that? Absolutely. I respected him for one reason. He was honest. Much worse are the slippery, sliding people who will never say what they really think about Jesus. They don't want to offend. But when they get to hell, they'll be quite offensive. Their stench will rise forever. Jesus is weeping, he's broken, he's sweating blood. I fell on the, on the rock that they say Jesus fell on. And I lay there weeping and praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Asking that I could have the same passion for the lost. Jesus is asking that this hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but yet what you will. He came to the absolute end of himself and said, not what I want, but what you want. And it makes me stop and ask you all a question. How far are you willing to go with God? How far are you willing to go with God? Jesus loves us with such mercy and love and compassion. 
There is no way to express the ocean of love that God has for us, that Jesus would be in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood for you and me. How far are you willing to go with God? Until things get rough, and then you begin to complain? Until the lust begins to attract your heart? And you say, I've got to go back to that old sin. Until the anger rises in your spirit and you say cutting and unworthy things from the mouth of a person who calls himself a Christian. How far are you willing to go with God? Are you willing to be crushed? Are you willing to deny yourself and take up your cross? Where was Jesus Where was he going when he said, deny yourself, take up your cross? He was going to Golgotha. He wanted us to go to Golgotha with him and be crucified with him. His love is enough. Now, I've been a pastor for many years. And part of my Golgotha was the very tough decision I had to make. That was not a tough decision. Do I want to be a successful pastor and have a large church and have people fawning over me and having people line up and tell me how wonderful I am? Or did I want Jesus because I discovered I couldn't have both? And I had to make a cold blood decision. Either I'm going to be a people pleaser or I'm going to please Jesus. It's one or the other. Either I'm going to please my friends or I'm going to please Jesus. I can't please both. You can't please an ungodly person by following Jesus Christ. They're in conflict. Jonathan Edwards, that wonderful man of God who started the third great Awakening, or the second great awakening. Jonathan Edwards preached the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, to his church. And they yawned. They were bored. He went to a neighboring church, and he preached Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and the place came alive in the spirit. And revival broke out and began to spread all over and prepared literally the way for the break with England. Spiritually prepared America for the battle to separate from England. Jonathan Edwards' grandpa pastored the church that later Jonathan Edwards was to pastor. And his grandpa saw that it would please the people if they could grow the congregation. And so they made the corporate decision to invite the half-converted to be members of the church. And the church blossomed in growth. Now, who are the half-converted? The people who walk in obvious sin who are not sold out to Jesus. And as far as I can tell, that was a key place where a lie began to be brought into the church 
called gradual conversion. Bring the half-converted in, love them enough, and gradually they might become complete Christians. Jonathan Edwards, when he took over his grandpa's church, said there will no more be these half-converted Christians. We're done. Now, a half-converted Christian wanted to have the privileges of marriage, (coughs) funerals, the Eucharist. He said, no. These are only for the fully converted, sold out, completely committed Christians, soldiers of the cross. It's obvious that today the half-converted have taken over the American church. And now the truly converted are but a small handful in the body of Christ. That's going to change as revival comes. Jesus has to clean his bride up. And he will. It's his job. It's not mine. It's my job to obey and love his people. But Jesus will do the job. And he'll use some people who are not people pleasers to bring the conviction and the message of repentance. Here's Jesus on the ground. He staggers up. He desperately needs to be comforted. Psalm 69, 20 and 21. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none for comforters. I found not one. His disciples were sound asleep. He went to his disciples for comfort, and they were asleep. He'd said, could you watch and pray? But the scriptures say they couldn't watch and pray because they were worn out, troubled, stressed, and they escaped into sleep. Now, if you look at it, they'd been through a couple very hard weeks. And Jesus loved them, and he did not rebuke them in a harsh way. He said, Simon, Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Oh, I tell you, I love Jesus. Jesus sees my spirit, but he sees my body as well. And sometimes our body won't let us do what our spirit wants to do. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back again, he found them sleeping. (laughs) Their eyes were heavy. They didn't know what to say to him. Jesus needed comfort. Do you know what I found? The greatest ministry I have is to my Lord Jesus. I love to go 
as I did in the early hours of this morning, and just sit before him and tell him how much I love him. Just to be in his presence. Jesus, I didn't come with any demands. I just came to say thank you for the kind of love you've poured out for me. I love you, Jesus. To read his word, to bask in his presence. I wouldn't miss ministering to you all. But oh, to minister to Jesus. That's where it's at. Now, I want to show you Jesus' prayer was answered. He asked the Father to take this cup from him, and the cup was removed. Angels came and ministered to him and comforted him and strengthened him so that he could walk out of the Garden of Gethsemane with his face glowing with the presence of God so that when the crowd came and he spoke, they fell to the ground as dead men. This man, Jesus, had the glory of God all over his face. It was from the comfort of his angels. I wish that he'd walked out of the Garden of Gethsemane with the comfort of his brothers. But instead, the angels came and did our job. I don't want the angels to do our job anymore. But I tell you, I think, this is just me thinking now, please. It's not gospel. It's just me thinking. But in my mind's eye, I see Jesus walking the streets of the New Jerusalem with whole quarters of it solely, completely empty, buildings, beautiful homes, everything arranged and ready. And Gabriel walking with Jesus, and Gabriel saying, Jesus, when are you going to go gather your people and bring them home? When is this thing going to be over? When are you going to stop the suffering and the anguish and the pain on the earth? And Jesus answering soon, very soon. The Father has told me, soon it'll be ready. Jesus used his favorite term in verse 41. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. He did not say the Son of God is betrayed. I love him for that. Even though the disciples had not comforted him, he is still saying, I am the Son of Man. He claimed us. He was the Son of God. But his favorite title in the New Testament is Son of Man. He identified with us. Verse 42, rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And his betrayer came and kissed him. I want to tell you tonight. The kiss of the world 
is not worth anything. To please man and betray Jesus is the greatest folly that any human being can take part in. And I confess, I have taken part in that many times in the past. I will no longer. I will not be a part of the betrayal of Jesus. And any time we please the world, the flesh, or the devil, we are betraying Jesus Christ. We are siding with Judas with a kiss. Now, most of us would not betray Jesus with a kick or a slap or cursing. We'd betray him while we're saying, I love you, as we dive back into our sin, back into our anger, bitterness, judgments, lust, abuse of alcohol, abuse of drugs. We betray Jesus with a, with a kiss, saying, I love you. I don't want to ever betray Jesus again. But love must have actions. And actions mean risk. It means displeasing those sometimes even in power. It means displeasing a family member. I know what it is to have family members say, Ray, you're crazy and we don't talk to crazy men. And so we're not going to talk to you anymore and be cut off for four or five years with no communication. It's very painful to be treated as a crazy man by your family. But I did not betray Jesus. I've come to an end, brothers, sisters. I've come to an end. I'm not going to settle for anything less than full-blown Holy Spirit revival. And whatever scorn is heaped on me for that, I will take but I will not kiss Jesus with Judas. I will not deny my Lord. His revealed will is revival. It's his bride he loves. It's his church he loves. He doesn't have any other instrument in the world to bring salvation but by the church. The church is the apple of his eye. It is the most precious part. It is his bride-to-be. He loves the church. But he's calling the church to repent. He's calling us to repent, to get honest with God. There's a heaven to win and a hell to miss. I want heaven Not because I want to live forever. I want heaven because of Jesus. I can't stand to be separated from him. I'm on my way to heaven. 
I want to take a crowd with me. God bless you. cannot continue to sin and believe we are saved. I'm Pastor Ray Greenley. Listen Monday through Friday to Pilgrim's Progress at 1 p.m. right here at WAVA 780. Salvation is freedom from sin. Are you washed in the blood of the RevivalNow.Church Revival in Woodbridge RevivalNow.Church Revival in Woodbridge RevivalNow.Church Thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Come join us at NationalPrayerChapel.com or our sister website, RevivalNow.Church God bless you. We love you. Now unto him who is a to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy with great joy now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless for the presence of His glory with great joy, with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is... Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.